Are you glad to be here this morning? It's good to see you all here. I need your help this morning. I, I woke up at 2.30 and I had a lot of energy at 2.30. But by the time I got to the church, I was like, dude, I'm dragging now. So help me out. Smile a little bit. Give me some feedback. That always helps. You can uh, say amen in this church. It's all right. But um, it's, it's good to be in God's house. It's always good to look into his word, whether the pastor feels a lot of energy or not. Amen? Because the word of God is sharp and powerful. More than two-inch sword, David said a moment ago, so um, it's good to be here. So I wanted to give an announcement real quick before we get into the Word. Um, we were approached a couple of weeks ago about purchasing some land up at the entrance to our property. Now, if you've been around Living Water for a long time, you've heard us say, probably at one point or another, it'd be cool one day if we could get the land at the entrance where all the treader houses are at, and we could clear that out and put a nice entrance or a nice sign there. Um, it's something we've talked about and discussed over the years. Well, we were approached a couple of weeks ago from the landowner, um, and we've just kind of been going back and forth, praying about it, meeting his elders. Um, and so we're ready to go to the next step. And the next step, according to the bylaws, is that we need to bring it to the church for an approval or no approval, right? So uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is the week after Easter, which is April 16th, at 6 p.m., I'm going to ask you to come for a special meeting just where we can talk about the land and kind of how we plan on proceeding. Um, it's at 6 o'clock on Sunday night, the Sunday after Easter. And be praying about it because we as an elder board have spent probably more time on this specific decision than we have on all the other ones in the past. We just really want to know, God, is this what we want to do? Is this what you want us to do? Um, and we want his direction in that. So be in prayer, if you will, and join us on the 16th at 6 p.m. as we discuss that. And we'll take a vote and go from there. Is that all right? All right. For the three of you that's agreeing, that's awesome. <clears throat> Mark chapter 11. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the Sunday we celebrate the triumphal entry of Christ. And, and before we dig into the scripture this morning, we just got to ask the question... What went wrong? If Passover, or excuse me, if Palm Sunday is the triumphal entry of Christ, the, he enters in great triumph, what happened that just a few short days later it would all fall apart? Now, I'll just give you a spoiler alert for a moment. From God's perspective, everything went according to plan. So we might ask the question, what went wrong? But from God's perspective, nothing went wrong. It went according to plan. But from our human perspective, I think that sometimes we have this dilemma where we look at um, the entrance of Christ, this tribal or this, this exciting moment in history of Israel where the triumphant entry of Christ, and then we consider just a few short days, days later um, the crowds that were showing their love and their adoration for Christ on Sunday would turn on him on Friday of the same week. Um, and so I want to look at that. And also, what choice does Palm Sunday, even today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, what choice, choice does it present to us today? And so hopefully we'll explore the reasons that the Roman Empire, the Jewish religious leaders, and the common people of Israel all turned on Jesus after that glorious day. So the title of the message is, What Kind of King Do You Expect? And we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Mark, and here's why. Mark is the earliest record of the Gospel account of Christ. Um, if you look at Matthew, and you look at John, and you look at Luke, they all borrowed from Mark as they wrote down their account of the Gospel. So Mark is the closest record we have of the life of Christ. Also, Mark was careful to give us kind of some breaks to know what day was going on and what, what was happening on specific days. And so you'll see the next morning and that evening or that night, and it kind of helps us kind of walk through all the events that took place. What's even more cool than that is in chapter 15 of Mark, he breaks it down almost like in a military time where every three hours he's giving us a report. Early in the morning, that's 6 a.m. And then he says at 9 a.m., Christ was crucified on a Friday. At noon, darkness fell all across the earth, 
Right? And at three, Jesus shouted out some words, and then he did it again, and he gave up his spirit. And then it says in the evening, and before the evening came, a darkness, or it says that they buried Jesus in the tomb. And so chose Mark, uh, his account of the triumphant entry um, today as we celebrate this Palm Sunday. So Mark chapter 11, we're going to read in verse 1. Before we do that, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come here. Lord, I acknowledge that your word is truth. And Lord, we can glean truth from your word today if we're listening, if we're looking for it. And so my humble prayer is that you'll give us a a ready spirit, um, a heart that's ready to receive the truth of your word, ears to hear, eyes to see what you might want to show us today. God, and I lift myself up to you. Lord, I pray that you would give me, Lord, the the ability to communicate, the energy, um, Lord, that I need today. For whatever reason, I'm the way I am, God. I know that you're the one that's in control, and I just leave it in your hands. And so, Lord, we ask that you, above all, would be glorified in our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks... What are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. Okay. Verse 4. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God. Some of your translations will say, Hosanna. Praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming king, kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. And the next verse is the next morning. So we know that chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 is Sunday. Sunday records the triumphant entry of Christ. All four gospels record that. And so, as I said a moment ago, the question is, is what happened from Sunday to just a few short days later when it would all seemingly fall apart, to go from a moment of triumph and excitement and elation to one of great tragedy and sorrow and loss? And so, as we explore that this morning, I want you to consider um, a couple of problems there that Jesus would have encountered. And I think it's important for us to not take Scripture in a vacuum, right? We read it in 2023 with our culture and our mindset and our understanding and ideas of how things work. And we need to, as hard as it is, take our brains back about 2,000 years and try to imagine what was going on at this time. And so what was going on is the Romans are now occupying Israel. About 80 years before Jesus comes, the Romans take over Israel and they've now occupied the land. They're in control. And they have little governors that are over different areas. And so this particular area where Jerusalem is at is where Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was the governor of that area. So you need to know that the children of Israel, the land of Israel, were occupied by Rome. It was tense. Uh, They didn't like it. They were longing for, they were yearning for a king 
uh, in the line of David, the, a deliverer to come and free them from the oppressors, this time Rome. So they're getting ready to celebrate Passover, which Passover was the reminder to the children of Israel of an early time when God had delivered them from another oppressor, another empire, one in Egypt. And so here we are in this Passover time, and so um, you may know about the, re- the, 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 the entrance of Jesus, but there was another entrance um, at that time that I want to speak on for just a moment. Now, some scholars say it would have probably been the exact same day. Some said it might have been a day or two earlier. But here's the entrance that is contrasting the one that we just read about in scriptures. It's the entrance of the governor, Pontius Pilate. Pontius lived on the sea Um, Capernaum by the sea is where he lived. That's where he made his home. And so I'm sure he didn't want to go to Jerusalem, but it was his job. Jerusalem was crowded, especially during the Passover time. There were people there. It was a hotbed for religion and uprisings. In fact, earlier on during King Herod's reign in 4 BC, there was an uprising in the north, and they had to come in and squash it, and 2,000 Jewish people were killed. And so now it's that time of the year again. It's this celebration of the Passover where they celebrate the liberation from their oppressors. And so Pontius Pilate gets on his horse and he makes his journey from his home to Jerusalem. He would have entered from the northwest gate of the temple of Jerusalem. I want you to imagine for a moment what that must have been like if you're there that day to see the war horses coming in with great you know, just power and strength and to hear the creaking of the leather of the soldiers, the clanking of the the swords, the thunder from the feet as they marched through the gates of Jerusalem that day. I can tell you it would have probably been very intimidating. And that was their point. They wanted to remind the Jews who was in control. Remind them, hey, in case you get any wild ideas and try an uprising, we are bringing and we're demonstrating great power and strength, and so don't even think about it. In fact, they had a garrison of troops that stayed at Antonio's fortress, which is attached to the temple. In fact, it was so attached that they could come from that fortress, which was elevated. They could keep an eye on what was going on, and if they needed to get there quickly, they would arrive there quickly. So there's this <clears throat> great entrance this triumphant entry, if you will, of another person, of Pontius Pilate, and what it communicated was strength, power, intimidation, right? Who's in control? We're not talking about that entrance, though. We're talking about the one of Jesus, which is far different. On the other side of the temple, on the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives, the beautiful gate or the golden gate, Jesus comes in. And so to use in his own words, back to Mark chapter 11, verse 2, it says, he tells his disciples, go into that village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. And so Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go get a donkey. We're fixing to go to Jerusalem for what's going to be the last time. And so on the other side of the temple, Jesus makes this entrance on a donkey. Communicates a totally different thing, right? On the one hand, you got the power and the intimidation and the strength. And on the other hand, you got the humility of riding in on a donkey. It demonstrated, it communicated peace. We're coming in peace. Some scholars have wondered, why did Rome take so long to deal with Jesus? And I believe that's probably what it was. If you were there that day and you saw one procession, this one of military strength, and over here you see a dude on a donkey, you're probably thinking, that's probably not much of a threat. But oh, it was a big day for the children of Israel because they were reminded of a prophecy in Zechariah. 
And as Jesus arrived towards the temple gate, Matthew's careful to record this, that it fulfilled the prophecy because he came in on a donkey. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion, or daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. You had a king over here, you know, Pontius Pilate, if you will, the governor in control. Your king, Israel, is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so you would think that as soon as they saw Jesus coming on a donkey, they would have been reminded of prophecy like, cool, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Zechariah gave us over 500 years ago. Here comes our king, humble, riding on a donkey. Zechariah didn't write that just to give us the mode of transportation that Jesus was going to take that day. Zechariah wrote as an encouragement to the Israelites that God had not forgotten them. Listen to what else he tells the children of Israel. Verse 8 of that same prophecy says, I will guard my temple and protect it from invading armies. I am watching closely to ensure that no more foreign oppressors overrun my people's land. Eighty years They've been under the oppression of Rome. And to hear that prophecy, no longer will foreign oppressors overrun my people's land. The next verse, rejoice, O people of Zion. They would have been rejoicing because what they expected was their king to come in and kick the oppressor out. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He continues, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will st- stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So if you're a student of Hebrew literature and, and God's word, the scriptures, the prophecies, they were keen to what Jesus was doing. And so you have these two processions that day into Israel on Palm Sunday or right there close to one another, and so you have one contrast in the other, one of power and strength, and the other one of humility. And so, I want to ask the question. I probably get ahead of myself, but if we were there that day, and we witnessed those two magnificent entrances, which one would we follow? Which would we fall in line behind and follow? Along. And so Jesus encountered these problems. There was this expectation from the common people, the people of Israel who were looking for a deliverer. Man, we want to deliver, we want to restore the glory um, of Israel that was there when King David ruled and reigned. We want someone like King David to come in, kick the Romans out, and it's going to be amazing. We just want that. In fact, the word Hosanna means simply that it means please deliver us. Or save now. It means I beg you to save. And so when Jesus is coming in, their understanding of prophecy, this is what God had promised Israel. We know it's a future prophecy from our perspective, but from theirs, they're like going, this is it. This is it. Kick the Romans out. It's going to be amazing. That was their expectation. And that was a problem because their expectations were unmet, unfulfilled. And Jesus didn't come in power and strength, but he came in Humility. Those who watch that day will make a choice. They will serve the God of this world, might and power, or they will choose to serve the king of a very different kingdom, King Jesus, the kingdom of God. In fact, Mark talks a lot about the kingdom. So there's a problem with the people's expectations and what Jesus was going to do for them and what he failed to deliver um, on their behalf from their perspective. 
Another problem they had was with the, the leadership. Uh, there's a quote in a book on leadership called Leadership on the Line, and the quote is this. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. That's a good quote. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can afford or absorb. So, so the idea is this. Like in leadership, you, you make changes, right? You're leading, you're making changes, and sometimes those changes can be a disappointment to the people that don't want the change. And so leadership is the ability to, right, to just disappoint a few people at a rate that they can absorb, like not to just come in overnight and change everything. And so when Jesus has this other problem, his followers get caught up on Sunday committing to follow him, but by the end of the week, Jesus will have disappointed the whole crowd at a rate faster than they can stand. They will turn on him, even those that are closest to him. You know, Peter denies him, and Jesus said, all of you will fall away on behalf of me tonight, and we know that all the disciples ran from Jesus. And so there's the people's expectation. They wanted to be ruled by a man like David to bring back the glory of Israel. They wanted to rid the world of oppression, and they wanted to rule in benevolence, and they want them to be kind to the common people because they didn't have a lot of that in their day. And so another problem that, that Jesus encountered in a, a very quick amount of time was with the leadership, those who were the rulers um, in that day in Jerusalem, the religious leaders. And Jesus had already challenged these religious leaders already, early on. I think he called them brood of vipers. I mean, that's not a good way to start off winning, um, you know, as how to influence friends and win enemies or something like that. He started off by criticizing the religious leaders. And then there's the temple. The temple is like the central place for worship. They believe that you can meet God anywhere, right? God's everywhere. But if you want to meet God, you've got to go to the temple. And if you want to find forgiveness, that's where the sacrificial system at, is at. So the temple was central to all of the Passover festivities. And so that was a big, big deal. And Jesus comes in and challenges the authority of the temple system. So he basically says that there's not only the place, or the only place to get forgiveness is not just in the temple, that you could receive forgiveness other places. And so last week I mentioned the story in Mark 2 of the paralyzed man that the friends lifted him down through the roof, right? And Jesus looks at him knowing he's healed physically. He says, your sins are forgiven. Immediately after that, the leaders said, he's speaking blasphemy. Who does he think he is, God? Some said the blasphemy was because he was claiming to be God. Others were saying, no, no, no. The temple's the only place that you can get forgiveness at. And here's this guy saying you can receive forgiveness outside of the temple. He was threatening the authority of the temple. Not only that, he said the temple would be destroyed. Uh-uh, not the temple. That's a special place to us. And Jesus prophesied that not one stone would be left on top of another stone. And shortly after that, in 70 AD, it was destroyed, fulfilling the prophecy exactly. So there was a lot at stake for the leaders in Israel during Jesus' time. Those who made their living from the temple, the scribes, the chief priests, the ruling council of the Sanhedrin and all the religious parties, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would lose their power if there was no temple. Or even if the temple was not the only place where one could be forgiven by God. I remind you again, Jesus challenged the authority of the temple system when he heals a man outside of the temple. In uh, chapter 11, it continues like on the Monday, verse 15, when Jesus goes into the temple Notice what it says. It says, when he arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals and sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs and those selling doves. 
And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. They were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. So Jesus threatens the temple system. He cleans the the system out. He exposes the corruption that's inside the temple, the temple tax, the exchange rate, the dishonesty of those who sold the animals for sacrifice. And let me just make sure you and I understand this. Jesus was not against the Jews. He was a Jew. Jesus was not against Judaism because that was the law that he said he came to not abolish but to fulfill. But Jesus was against corruption. Jesus was against a group of people who have taken God's word and so twisted it and so manipulated it that it was nothing like what it should have been, right? And so Jesus was pointing out that corruption. Jesus had disappointed and alienated powerful people. And so in a few short days, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, this triumphant entry, and just a few short days later, he would be betrayed by all. He did so because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even his own people, the chief priests, the scribes, and most of the Levitical priests and others, they ruled on Rome's behalf. So not only did you have Rome that's in control and they're excising tax, you know, they're asking for taxes from all the Jewish people. Now you got your own Jewish people who are kind of in cahoots with Rome. And so they're collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. And if they're good at what they do, they'll get a little bit extra from you. Um, and whatever they get above what Rome requires, they could just put it in their pockets. And so they were considered like traitors to the common people there. And Jesus is just exposing this whole system. They were a part of the system and oppression of, and domination that Pilate was also a part of. And so the answer to the first question is like, what happened? I think it's easy to see that Jesus didn't meet expectations of the common people when he didn't come and liberate them immediately from Rome. Jesus uh, offended the religious leaders when he revealed that there was another way of finding forgiveness outside of the temple. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. So there's this contrast of two kingdoms that were on display. The common people thought that they sided with Jesus because they did so for the same reasons the the Pharisees on the other side sided with Rome. They thought that Jesus would do things for them. He would help them out. He would put them in a good position. Everything would be better for them. In fact, it wasn't better. In some cases, it would be worse for them. That's why they turned. He's not going to do any of these things. In fact, it's going to get worse. So the leaders who never agree, think about this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who never agreed on anything, all of a sudden they agree together that Jesus has got to go. And so they all conspired with one another, got together and had Jesus arrested by the guard of the high priest. Jesus had to go. The other thing they were worried about was attracting the attention of the Roman Empire. Remember, they were under Roman occupation, and if things got out of hand, the Romans would step in, and they didn't want that, so it's easy just to, let's take care of this Jesus problem so Rome doesn't step in. And so these are the things that they were dealing with during the Passover. So when Jesus was accused and brought before the angry mob by Pilate, they wanted to get rid of him. In their minds, he didn't do what they wanted him to do. He never defeated the Romans. He never dissolved the unfair tax system. He never put common people in charge of the government, and furthermore, he never would. And so Pilate, on that day when he kind of appeases the crowd by releasing a prisoner, you remember the story, said, 
Pilate said, all right, it's customary for us to release one of the prisoners on this day. And who do you want me to release, Barabbas, which was a known criminal, or Jesus, the king of the Jews? And the crowd shouted out, give us Barabbas. And I want to know, if I had been Jerusalem that day, my expectations not being met, where would I have stood in that? So if you think about it, that's the choice that we make um, each day. We choose to follow a system and to serve a kingdom of power in my, this world that we live in, or we choose to yield to a different kingdom, the kingdom of God, right? That one day is going to be a reality, but it's a, a reality in our day too, right? The, the, the principles of the kingdom of God. And so we have a choice to choose power and might over his kingdom principle of love, to choose the way things are done. Hey, that's just the way we do things now. Or to do things the way God intends them to be done. Two processions, two kingdoms, two choices. Which would you choose? What kind of king do you expect? You know, we live in a world where a lot of people have these expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus should do for them or will do for them. And I've sadly seen people over the years where maybe their marriages are wrecked. And they're like, man, I just... I'm starting going to church, and I need a little Jesus in my life, but they don't do anything to fix some of the problems that they're experiencing in the marriage, and they get frustrated when they don't feel like Jesus did what they expected him to do. We've got religious leaders that say, hey, if you give your life to Christ, then everything's going to be great. My Bible says Jesus himself said, in this world, you'll have troubles. But he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we come to Jesus with these expectations. When those expectations are unmet, it makes me wonder, like, what were we expecting? What kind of king did we expect? Let me tell you what I expect. I expect a king who does what he said he's going to do. And Jesus did do that, right? He said, I came to seek and to save the lost, to give my life as a ransom for many. And we know that through the rest of the week, as we follow the Passion Week or the Holy Week, what Jesus went through on behalf of you and me. And so the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 1, 11, uh, you know, that same passage, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It says, The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And it says, He came to His own people. The own Jewish, His own Jewish people, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But He said, But those who did receive Him and believed on His name, He gave the right to become or to be called the children of God. That's the good news for you and me today. Amen? What kind of king do you expect? What are you looking for? Listen, I, here's the king that I put my faith in and his kingdom. Listen, it's, a, it's a upside down from the culture and the way we live today, isn't it? Even today? Like it's considered backwoods or upside down or you're like, you guys need to get with the 21st century or whatever. It's like we march to the beat of a different drum. We're like, hey, I want to live according to the kingdom principles of the kingdom of God and, and live like Christ lived and live like he taught us to live. And so that's the king that I expect, one who leads us and one day when he does return in great victory and power and might then it'll all become clear to all of us. Amen? And so while we wait and while we remember, while we just consider what went wrong from their perspective, I think in a word it was expectations, that Jesus didn't meet expectations. And so the question is, is like, why are, why are you following him? What do you expect? What kind of king do you expect? Let me tell you about the king that I trust. I trust the king who laid down his life for the sheep, right? The shepherd I trust the king who gave up his life so that I could have a right standing with God the Father. I trust the king that became the sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world, not the one that would just cover the sins of the world, but I trust King Jesus. I trust his word and what he said that he did for me.
And I trust what he says that whosoever, say whosoever. You know what that means? Duh. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news, isn't it? What, what kind of king do you expect? I, I hope that we will yield to his kingdom, follow him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and one day when we stand before him in a great celebration, oh, what a day that's going to be. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you received him? Have you believed on his name? The most important decision you make is what you do with Jesus. And I would just encourage each one of us in the room to place our faith in Jesus, to trust in him, to yield to him, and say, God, I, it's not my will, but your will be done. I follow you, King Jesus. I trust you. That's what I expect. And he's faithful to do what he said he would do. And, and you just think about God's love for all of humanity. The, the scriptures tell us that this is how he demonstrated that love for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Oh, what great love God has for his people. Have you received his love and his offer of gift of salvation? I pray it's the most important decision you can make. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, just the reminder and your word of how people can be so fickle. In one moment, they're shouting praises to your son, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the next moment, those very same voices will be yelling, crucify him. God, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say that we're probably fickle like that too. But I pray, God, that we would not have uh, wrong expectations, expectations that are based off of our wants and what culture tells us they should be or what... Lord, we want to base it off of what your word says they are. And uh, Lord, we know that we can trust you. We know that you're a, a faithful God and that you'll accomplish everything that you said. So Lord, my expectations are high, but they're grounded in your word. And Father, I know that one day when I'm absent from this body, I'll be present with you. And God, I thank you for that. That's the king. That's the king that I expect. That's the king that I follow. And I pray that, Lord, if there be anyone in this room today that has not placed their faith in you, that today would be the day that they would trust in you, King of kings, Lord of lords, that we wouldn't get caught up in culture and get caught up in the system of today and power and strength and might, but we would remember the principles of a greater kingdom, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of peace. God, that we would reflect you in our lives. Lord, that's my prayer. God, would you be honored today? Lord, if there be anyone here that's not placed their faith, I pray that today would be the day they trust you for salvation. I humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.